I'm trying to figure out what Kurt Franklin would do at the top of a podcast. Like, would he be like, let's go. Come on. Here's what he'd do. He'd be like, let's go <laughs> to all my people in the struggle. God's not forgotten about you. Here's some pain medicine. Uh, bring the beat in. What's up, good people? Welcome back to The Mourner's Bench, a podcast by Theo Lab Media. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT Ricks. I'm Malcolm David. I'm Pastor Sam. And on today's episode of The Mourner's Bench, we are revisiting a very, very early conversation. We're going back to our first episode. We're not just going to play the old episode for you. We're just going to re-engage that conversation once again to think a little bit more critically about who God is for us, how we came to understand God in that way, and then what our relationships are to the church. You may remember in my one-on-one conversation with Pastor Sam, I started the episode with four questions that I like to ask people. Who is God to you? Where did you learn that about God? And then I added a question here. On what hill are you willing to die for your faith? Same-sex marriage, Black Lives Matter, inclusion of women in ministry. And then what's at stake for you in that? And what would change about God if that wasn't true? Asked differently, would you still have a need for God if that wasn't true and or if it was resolved? Since we never really wrestled with those questions and I put them into the atmosphere, I figured this would be a great time for us to revisit our first episode. We all have listened to it recently to think about how we've grown, how we've changed, and we're interested now in initiating that conversation again. Now that we have a new president in the office, this podcast came to fruition at a time when Donald Trump was in the White House and it felt like in many ways the world was ending and that shaped a lot of our early conversations. And it will still shape some of our future conversations. Just because Joe Biden has been elected doesn't mean that everything is okay. There are still some really good truths, I believe, that were shared in those early episodes. We encourage you to go back and listen to them at some juncture. But for today, let's get started talking in more broad terms. I'm curious to know who and or what God is for each of you. Malcolm, what do you got? I wanted to not go first. I was really curious to hear how others would answer that question. It's such a simple question. You know, I I spent three years of my life and paid a lot of money to go to seminary to come up with an answer for it. And I still don't know that I have one that I've settled on. I think for me, God is a capital T truth. And I also, I grew up in a religious tradition that taught me that grace and that love from God were really kind of the ultimate form of of truth. I still feel like I haven't found a story that helps me better make sense of my life or the world that I see around me than the story of Jesus. That story captivates me. I think it is true in every sense of that word. It feels true on my good days. I can really sense um, that there's something behind it. But yeah, that's the only way I know how to answer that question. Again, I I wish I could be more eloquent. I wish I could give a more comprehensive answer. I've spent a lot of time trying to come up with an answer for it. I think that's as close as I can get. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the journey, right? I mean, I think anyone who is actually trying to wrestle with what it means to believe in God and live faithfully in response to God, by whatever name you choose to call God, I think if you're being faithful to that, it's a lifelong journey of trying to figure out how you respond to that question. And sometimes it's how you respond to that question today. So I have two very different and distinct understandings of God. As a child, I learned that God loves me. God loves everyone without condition. 
I didn't necessarily know what that meant. I surely didn't know what that felt like, but cognitively, I understood that. Uh, The church taught me that in the constant and ever-present role that it played in my life. And that knowledge helped me. That knowledge of God's love helped me when I came out. And I never, ever considered the option that God didn't love me, period. So while coming out was huge, it was actually my belief in God's constant and abundant love that grounded me. That cognitive knowledge of God's love was not helpful, however, when the church shut the door on me because I'm queer. Hmm. That was a tremendous shock to my faith, or at least to my theology, which I would argue are different. How so? Theology feels cognitive to me. Faith feels like something deeper. And I think that's what's emerged for me, or that distinction has emerged for me and is continually developing because how I know God now is very intimate. I have a very intimate and personal and palpable relationship with God. I know God with a knowledge that is deeper than anything that I can think and deeper than anything I can feel. And so I think that is what I call faith today. It's just intriguing, right? So you talk about faith and theology, you talk about theology being something that's thought or cognitive and faith being something that you feel, but yet and still your language in some ways betrays you because you know God. Right, I don't remember my Greek anymore, but there's some word know in Greek that isn't cognitive. It is like in the very depths of your bones and the depths of your spirit, you know something. And that's how I know God. And so I wish there were a word that described it because, I mean, it's not even what I feel. It is like deep within my soul knowledge. The question for me is more, uh, what is God for me? I think about God as both transcendent and imminent. Let me explain what I mean by that. Transcendent, to borrow some of that very expensive theological language that David talked about, it means that God is just like completely other. If you think in the sense of all of creation, human beings, birds, trees, you know, those things were created. God doesn't exist on that spectrum. God was not created with all of creation. God is completely other, which makes it challenging When we try to comprehend or think about God, we're limited to our human capacity. So in some sense, we always fail at trying to understand who God is because God is completely other. But at the same time, God to me is imminent, which means God exists in every one of us. And so it's hard to even try to identify or understand who or what God is without starting by looking in the next person, in your neighbor, in the person sitting across from you, in other human beings. The answer to that question, the key to that door is in each one of us. Yeah, Sam, I think that really resonates with, for me, who God is. The question's also hard for me to answer as well, or hard for me to offer a response, because so many times I think what I've experienced is whoever or whatever I have believed God is, has been deeply informed by like what somebody else taught me, which we'll get to in a second. Every single day, I try to ask myself that question. And I think the intention of that question is not to try to make God in my own image because my undergraduate Greek professor, Bob Bird, who I love dearly, he said, you know, God created humankind in God's own image and then humankind turned around and returned God the favor. 
And I think so many times, whoever and whatever God is to us is really what we've created. God is whoever we need God to be. And there are all these names for God and God becomes all these things whenever we need them on command. It's almost like God is a genie in a bottle. So I'm not attempting to say that every day I wake up and I try to figure out who is it that I want God to be, but every day I'm trying to figure out for whoever and whatever God is, how do I live fully in relationship to that in a manner that reflects that relationship to others and in a way that brings life into the world? So y'all know I absolutely love music. And that's one of the primary ways that I still experience God to this day. There's a song by India R.E. that's really been meaningful to me lately called God is Real. What's that? Oh, y'all want me to sing a little bit of it? <laughs> I know y'all didn't say it, but I still want to sing because... Um, I think that's the easiest way for me to convey who and what God is to me at this particular moment in my life. In St. Lucia, I jumped in the water For the first time I understood its power as I swam, I was cleansed, yeah, if I had any doubts, this experience cleared them, now I know for sure that God is real, I know that it's the truth by the way it feels. Uh, that's how I know that God is real All of this is not by chance That's how I know that God is real So to the point of that song It is when I'm sitting there in the ocean And I'm swimming And I get swept up in its power And its movement There's something about God in that It is when I'm sitting in the woods And there's a stillness and a silence And the darkness surrounds me Because there's no city lights That I start to sense something about Who and what God is So for me, God is a journey God is a fellow sojourner And God is the reliable other Your ass ain't been sitting in no woods You ain't been sitting in no ocean (laughs) I do, you know, I still have some white friends And you know, white people like to do those things And I'd be like, okay, do y'all have any clothing that I can put on me so that snakes can't bite me? Let's go out in the woods. (laughs) They're like, there are no snakes. I'm like, there are snakes everywhere. Exactly. Sarah and I are planning to go for a hike this afternoon. Brandon, if you want to go experience the divine with us. It's too cold. See, see one thing that I know about my God, (laughs) to the extent that I put something on God, one thing I know about my God is my God don't like cold weather. That's white people's God because they be outside in sweatshirts (laughs) and flip-flops and Daisy Dukes. And I'd be like, it is too cold for Daisy Dukes on today. So, I mean, we kind of been dancing around this a little bit. So, KT, lead us off. Like, who taught you that about God? The question of how I learned it is different than anything I've ever learned. No one taught me. There wasn't a book I read. I didn't hear someone else's testimony. How I came to know God the way I do now is that I had these two significant, all-encompassing, life-shaking struggles happening at the same time. And I was left at the complete end of myself. People talk about being broken. I was completely broken. And anything I knew about myself or about relationships or about God was out the window. 
It was in that space, in, in my complete and utter brokenness, that I met God. God has always been there. I had certainly experienced moments or glimpses in my life where I could hear or have this palpable encounter with God, but it was in my deepest brokenness that I was finally able to know in that deepest, deep way, the living God. There's a line from Leonard Cohen, a Leonard Cohen song that my therapist said to me. This podcast just got like 100% more white. I I love Leonard Cohen. No shit, Malcolm. (laughs) You're proving Brandon's point. (laughs) He is the prophet of our time. There's a line from a Leonard Cohen song that my therapist said to me when I was starting to feel whole again. And it comes up whenever I start thinking about this time in my life. And it is, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that line is the story of my faith because it was in the brokenness that that God taught me who God was. But I'm going to push you, Katie. So did the church teach you to talk about God like that? Because that's nothing, I mean, some of it sounds resonant with what church has taught me, but did you teach yourself? Was this all self-taught? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, the Presbyterians don't have language for when God shows up and, and starts talking to you in, in these holy moments. Um, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I didn't learn that from anybody. I, I, I learned that from just encountering the world and, and being so broken that I couldn't think my way out of what was happening. So no, that's why nobody taught me this. Like I was broken enough that I could see God. Then I couldn't deny it. I think Jordan has played for me the India Ari song before because there really aren't words to talk about, to share about that. But no, this is all self-taught if you want to think of it that way. Or God taught. I mean, self-taught and or Leonard, Leonard Cohen taught you who God was. Uh, that's either way that works. <laughs> no, 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 no. So Leonard Cohen was after it though. I know. I'm being silly. I'm being silly. Okay. I was like, no, no, no. But I was able to get out of the way. So Sam, what about you? I think um, I was taught and then I was retaught. I was taught first by like a combination of my childhood pastor, evangelical Christian television like TBN. <laughs> don't don't judge me. Uh, <laughs> oh God, I'm not judging. But you know you watch TBN too because you was at that church in Tennessee and you loved it. You was like, preach, Jakes. I did not love it. <laughs> Let me tell you the moment that I stopped liking TBN, it was when Jan Crouch got up there and she said, do y'all know why the dinosaurs died? Why what? Do y'all know why the dinosaurs died? Why? It's because there wasn't enough love. Their just little bitty arms were too short to hug. And I said, oh my God, ma'am, that's not actually what happened. Science is real. (laughs) Wow, there's not enough love. Because their little arms were too short to hug. With all her purple hair. Anyway, so you learned from Paul and Jan Crouch how to love God. <laughs> I, not not actually Paul and Jan. I didn't listen to them. I listened to the to mostly the black preachers who were on uh on TBN and then you know, Rob Parsley. God, please somebody shoot me for that. The ultimate like commodifier of black culture. All right. And Trump supporter. Yeah. So so I learned from those things. And I think it was during kind of this phase or journey that I began to really question the image of God that those things had constructed. And that, you know, worship had constructed in, in my own traditions and practices. And I said to myself, there must be more to God than this. That kind of pursuit of a deeper understanding 
of what or who God is led me to really want to take a sledgehammer to all of those assumptions, all of those ideas, all of those things that people had kind of planted in my mind and ultimately led me to seminary. And I won't say seminary necessarily taught me who God was. It gave me the vocabulary for what started to develop or emerge within myself. And so that's where this language of God kind of being transcendent or holy other and God also being present in each one of us kind of comes from. You say God being president in each one of us or present? Present. Okay. Present. I heard, I thought, I thought I was like, God is the, God is president. Okay. I mean, if you watch CBN, you probably would believe that God is president <laughs> and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Uh, <laughs> and of his kingdom. It was really this coming to this place of this journey in my life where I really was suspicious about everything that I've been taught, suspicious about these images that have been painted. And Brandon, you talked about like say, arguing that women couldn't preach in the church and all this stuff. And I remember going to college, really having debates with folks about why women shouldn't be in positions of leadership within the church, because that was my pastor's position. You know, like I was defending someone's else belief, someone else's faith. Yeah. And I didn't have a faith of my own or belief of my own. Yeah. And when I came to that realization, I said, no, I got to figure out what it is I believe because I, I really don't believe any of this junk. And so who helped you get to that next step though, right? So like, and I, I, what, what I'm hearing as a small theme is that there are these things we learn about God from our families and our communities and our churches. And then at least for KT and Sam, and I think probably for Malcolm as well, there came a moment where you had to grapple for yourself. And it sounds like for you, Sam, seminary did that. And for Katie, it was Leonard Cohen. <laughs> You're such an ass. Um, but <laughs> like, like how, who helped you transition to that next place of knowledge and knowing or faith? I mean, I, I mean, I just told you. I mean, I don't know what else you want me to say. It was it was seminary. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just making sure I'm tracking well because like not I and what I'm getting at, and then I want to hear from Malcolm too. But like what I'm getting at is not everybody has the opportunity to go to seminary, and so for people who reach this place of crisis in their faith, and I mean, it may not even be a crisis; it might just be just cognitive dissonance where you're like, um, uh, something that's not lining up with what I'm learning right now or what I'm experiencing right now. Like everybody can't go to seminary. I wish everyone could. I really couldn't. That's why I own a house in the form of student loans. But if I had not gone to seminary and I believe this is true, I would either be in the same place, still struggling with who or what God is, or I would not still be on a journey associated with the Christian church. Hmm. Malcolm, who taught you about God or where did you learn about God? I think for me, I can actually point to a really specific place. So when I was uh, in seminary, well, I was in an MDiv program, a Master of Divinity program, and that required me to work in a congregational setting. I had to have an internship in a local congregation, and I was so deeply disinterested <laughs> in that. I ended up working at a place called Holy Comforter Episcopal Church. It's a congregation where the majority of people who, who call that community home are folks who are living with developmental disabilities and with uh, severe mental illness. All of us have wounds. We have things that we are fearful of or ashamed of or wish we could hide. 
And for a person living with a significant embodied disability, that thing that others would project on them as shameful or as deficient or as wrong is also the most obvious thing about them. What I realized in being a part of that community is that No, actually, the way that we really get to know one another, the way that we encounter the holy, the the divine, the sacred in one another is by being truly ourselves, by bringing all of us into community with somebody else. And And I received that gift from people who lived very different lives than me, who looked very different from me, who in many ways were on the margins of of their community, people that were very, very easy to overlook. And that gift of authenticity, that commitment to community, that belief that when you bring all of yourself and I bring all of myself, something sacred might be found there. That was what I learned. And I, and I think that has really continued to shape my understanding of, of who God is, of how God works in the world, of where I might find God even still. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dig into this more. We're going to talk about what hills we would die on for the sake of our faith, if any, and then what's at stake for us in those hills, if you will. And then also what would change about God if those things weren't true or if those things were resolved. You know, if you stick around long enough, we're going to go to the mourner's bench because somebody needs to sit their tail on the bench. But we'll get to all of that right after this quick break. Hey, (laughs) y'all. because I'm Southern. Did you enjoy Tuesday's conversation with Lisa Weaver? Are you enjoying today's episode? Well, let me tell you a little secret. You ain't heard the half of it. Each week we work to keep our episodes under an hour and there's so much content we have to cut to keep it under that hour. But starting at the end of this month, we'll be releasing one extended episode each month to folks who sign up to become a Feel That Media patron. How can you do this? Well, just head over to patreon.com slash feelatmedia and sign up to give a little love offering each month to receive extended interviews, early access to new content, and so much more. Again, that's patreon.com slash feelatmedia. Every little bit helps. Now let's get back into it. So let's dive back in. One of the people who invited me to begin thinking about God differently was the dean of the School of Religion at Belmont University. His name is Daryl Gwaltney. He's still a good friend today. And I remember I was sitting there with him one day wrestling with what I was learning in my understanding the Bible class. It was a class that everyone had to take. And we went from the beginning of the Bible to the end in one semester. And I remember after the first day of class where the teacher said, you know, there are two creation stories um, and they kind of contradict each other. And I was having this crisis because the Bible is infallible. I was raised in Baptist circles and that's what I learned. And Daryl said to me, he said, you know, the thing for me that has changed in my life is it used to be the case that there were, he, he used his hands, but I'm going to use words because people can't see my hands. Um, you know, it, it used to be the case that I had a thousand things that I believed about God and all 1,000 of those things were essential to how I understood my faith. But all of those things, I believed them at like, you know, a foot. They were a foot deep. So it was a thousand feet wide and one foot deep. And he said, the older that I've become and the longer that I've lived and tried to be faithful to God, it's now the case that, and his hands just kind of shrunk. I'm going to make the number um, three. You know, now it's the case that I believe these three things about God, but I believe them at like a thousand feet deep. 
And these things are essential to my faith. And so it's less about the number of things and more about the depth of the things that I believe. And I remember another time he said, people always want to tell you that Christianity is about no, you know, no drinking, no cussing, no sex and no freaking, no dancing, no, 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 whatever the no's are that we hear in church context, mainly Baptist context. Um, But he said, Christianity is actually about finding your yes. And once you have found that yes, everything else becomes a no. And so for me, like the thing on which I think, the, the thing that's kind of a foundational component of my faith and a hill on which I'm willing to die would be the God's initial action as we read about it in Christian scripture was an act of creating the most beautiful and diverse world. God didn't say, I'm going to begin creating and make everybody water. There was already water and that was chaos is what the Christian scriptures teach. God said, I'm going to take one day and I'm going to think about how to create birds. And even in birds, I'm going to create other flying things to inhabit the airspace and then spent another day saying, I'm going to create creatures on the land and creatures of the sea. And even in those components of creation, there's going to be diversity. God said, I'm going to create the sun and not just let it be light all the time. There has to be diversity of expression. The sun's going to set and the sky is going to change colors. There's going to be diversity in the color of the sky. And then the sun's going to rise and there's going to be, and there's going to be darkness to counter the mood of the sun or to complement the mood of the sun. And even when God got to the place of creating humankind, depending on which creation story you're reading, God said, I'm not just going to create man. I'm not going to create the Adam. I'm going to also create Eve. I'm going to create a woman. There are some more progressive translations that say that God created sort of a transgender being from the start and then split that being into two. I mean, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of ways, places we can go with that, but I'm not going to do that. So I think for me, I want to focus on the fact that my, the hill on which I'm willing to die and the thing that is at the, you know, is the, is the chief's cornerstone of my sort of faith at this juncture is that if we are being faithful to the God we read about in scripture, then we will value diversity and all of the new ways that God is making that diversity manifest in our world. And diversity shouldn't make us fearful. And diversity shouldn't make us have little boring ass policies that don't really do anything. But diversity should move us to a place of celebrating the beauty of God. That's essential to my faith. Sam, what about you? I think uh, based on what you just said, I think the heel on which I'm willing to die has to do with ensuring freedom or liberty for all folks and the right for those folks to self-determination, even and especially theologically. What they believe about God, how God manifests God's self in their lives, in their world, in their culture, in their communities, it may be totally different than what I believe. But that's okay, because I believe that the God that created us wants us to be free. The thing that comes to mind for me today, the cornerstone of my faith, I believe that what is good and what is true are the same thing. And what I mean by that is there is so much evil in this world. And I use that word intentionally. We have built structures and institutions and societies 
around an idea that one group of people can oppress another people for their own gain. That's what I mean when I, when I talk about evil. And I think the, the fundamental claim I'm trying to make is that those things at their core are dead ends. That what is really real in the world is good. You know, I've always been struck by the phrase from Reverend Dr. King, the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it, but it bends towards justice. What I hear in that is a much more eloquent and a much deeper claim than the one I'm trying to make, that God's goodness will ultimately prevail. And I think the other thing that I want to say about that is that on, on my good days, when I'm really able to remember that and to embody that and to practice it, it gives me a kind of joy and a hope that I don't know how to conjure up for myself. It's that belief that I feel like continually beckons and, and calls me to do the work of justice, to try to create space for others to be authentically themselves. I just find that that, that claim, when I can really remember it, really know it, it changes the way I live. And the truth is I have a hard time remembering it. I have a hard time embracing that day in and day out. Katie, what about you? So when you first asked the question, I was thinking, I guess, about this distinction between theology and faith. And I, I heard it as a question about theology. I mean, and when I was a kid or, or when I was in seminary and most of the time pastoring a church, I would have had a lot of hills that I was willing to die on that were very deep. And I have very strong theological beliefs, many of them far more orthodox than the progressive Christians that I hang out with. But really, at this point in my life, there's absolutely no theological hill that I'm willing to die on as it relates to what I believe and know about God. I mean, I don't have any need for someone else to have my theological beliefs. I don't need anyone to have any theological beliefs. I wish for others to have that deep peace that comes from knowing the divine who I call God, but I've also heard that other people have that deep peace, that deep sense of love that comes from different ways. Having said that though, the hill that I am willing to die on if we want to use that language because of what I know about God is a hill that seeks justice for black and brown people, that seeks healthcare and food and housing for those who don't have them, that seeks safety for those who are abused and beaten, that seeks truth and authenticity in public and private arenas. Because the reality is, it doesn't matter what your theological convictions are. If you don't see those things as important or worth dying for, at least, or at least fighting for, then I don't understand you as a human, much less a person of faith. So if that's the kind of hill you're asking about, then that's the kind of hill I'm going to die on. But it's not because it's based on some theological conviction. It is based on the deep sense of knowing of this God who loves in the way that you were talking about, Brandon a diverse, deeply created and beautiful universe. This is all helpful. I mean, so for me, like I, it was also hard for me to figure out what's the hill on which I would die. The way that I framed the question initially wasn't helpful for even me, but I think what I was trying to get to is exactly what we're naming here. Freedom, justice, love, diversity, like all of these different things that have come up as we're talking, how I've experienced the last four years and really the last year under that last president's narcissistic leadership I've experienced a kind of national stalemate that was present many years prior to that man coming into office. But I think so many times 
the stalemates that we experienced are based on these things that we hold as foundational and that we hold as true. And so when we're having a pro-choice or a pro-life debate or we're having a Black Lives Matter versus white supremacist debate, I know where I'm going to be on every one of those conversations. But I think sometimes we need to try to get below the surface to figure out what is this language? What is this rhetoric? What is this binary logic standing in for? Like, what are the deeply held convictions that each of us have? Because whether or not we are willing to name it as being willing to die on that heel or die on that sword, in many ways, how we live our lives suggests that we are willing to die on that heel. And so we've already talked about this and danced around this a little bit, especially you at the end there, KT. What's at stake for you in that deeply held belief? For me, with there being beauty and diversity and that God's, the only way that God exists in the world is through this, you know, creation of diversity and manifestation of diversity and continuing ongoing creation of diversity in new and exciting ways and sometimes scary ways. Like what's at stake for me is that if I approach every single human and every single encounter as if at some moment God created them and thought that that was essential and whatever diversity that they embody or espouse verbally is essential to, to God's vision of the world, then that's a very different starting place than me approaching somebody like their, uh, what did Hillary Clinton call them? Degenerates? deplorables, degenerate, like, it, like that, it's just a very different way for me to engage. And I'm not saying that I do this perfectly. I'm not saying that I do it well consistently, but I am saying that that's the way that I try to begin. And when I find myself getting into hateful of a place, and when I find myself getting into too jaded of a place, I try to return to that. There, there's also the underside, right? I don't want to get too deep. I don't want to go too deep down this path. But there also is this way in which whatever the initial creative act was, whatever the initial diversity was, can become perverted. And we can can see the underside of that. And we, is, is, I'm not suggesting that God created white supremacy. I'm not cre- suggesting that God created homophobia. But I think what those are manifestations of is individuals and people trying to place themselves ahead of God, on top of God, and make of themselves God. When we get to the place where we have to hate any population, I think what we're actually saying is, I'm God's most perfect and most fine and most beautiful and most true and most holy creation, and all the rest of you imbeciles must bow at my altar. Now, what's at stake for you and what you hold to be true? For me, it's my ability to actually navigate the world and to connect with other humans and to maintain some sense of hope in the presence of a situation and a circumstance that oftentimes looks hopeless. For somebody else, it might be their mother. For somebody else, it might be their cousin. For somebody, like, and and, and I I think there are days where I have different things that I hold true. Like, my uncle recently passed away from COVID-19, and what I needed, the hill I needed to die on that day even though it's not the thing that I hold on to every single day, is that there is a place after this, a space after this, where my uncle is, where he's not suffering and he's not on a ventilator. I needed to believe that he was somewhere resting in Abraham's bosom. Maybe that's why it's such a difficult question for me to think about what the hill is, because for me, it's that relationship with God. It's that deep and intimate and palpable presence 
that is the hill, that is the God. And so whatever circumstance comes in my best moments, which don't happen that often, but in my best moments, I can lean into that relationship and discern sometimes quicker than others the holy way, the the way that God is calling me. I believe in my theological brain and even in my relational with God, my personal relationship with Jesus brain, that God loves Donald Trump and God loves Adolf Hitler and all these questions that we always throw out. But I ain't got to love them. <laughs> I do not have to do that. And, and I say that because so much of what I've been taught is since God loves those people, I need to let them be human or approach them in this way that God loves them. No, I think some people need to be approached by telling the truth. And so that is not that is not distinct from knowing that at some place, somehow, God loves all of humanity. Similarly, the reason that I talked about freedom or talk about, you know, kind of this idea of liberty for each person in some ways is directly connected to my strong belief in God's sovereignty and this strong belief that God chooses us from above, if above, uh, air quotes, versus us choosing God from below. And when we yield that control, because often I, I think we as Christians or as insert your religious ideology, I think most of us want, we want to be able to say who God chooses, who God embraces, who God accepts, who God has called or chosen, what group of people God's love, God loves. But when we yield that control, we have no choice but to be in favor of everyone's flourishing, everyone's prospering, everyone's self-determining, everyone's freedom. We don't find it necessary to make decisions for other people to make claims, broad claims about what God wants. And so those two are directly connected for me. I really resonate with uh, a lot of what y'all have said about our faith and our pursuit of of justice, of wholeness for other people um, as really being kind of deeply and intimately connected to one another. I think for me personally, the idea of of hope is is what's at stake for me. I feel like there is so much in the world for us to to grieve, to mourn, to look at with anger, to feel hopeless about, frankly. I would even go so far as to say, and this is some of my kind of deeply rooted theology coming out, there are pieces of my own heart. There are things that I do that I struggle with that feel hopeless, things that I want to do differently, ways that I I want to love people better. I want to be more generous towards other people. And I struggle with my inability to, to do that. And I think for me, the promise of my faith gives me hope to keep going. One of the core reasons why I would claim Christianity for myself is because it's the only thing that I know of for me personally that gives me the courage and the resolve to to keep trying. Other people find that from other places. And I, I don't mean to say that 
um, Christianity has a, a monopoly on this. But for me, it's hope that what is broken can be put back together. I'd, yeah, I would love to hear more. And I ask this because this is has been a point of my wrestling at the point at which I realized that the hope that I held on to that would help me sustain my own self in the midst of just a changing and, and horrible world wasn't enough. Like it was, there were still people being shot in the streets. There were still people dying. There's still people being abused. And the hope, like the hopefulness of a of a God who ultimately makes things new, that wasn't getting it anymore. It wasn't dealing with a world that was in front of me. Like I, I was debating between this hopefulness that I had and the the reality that I have this call to actually die for something. I don't mean that metaphorically either. And so I wonder, I wonder if you've experienced that. I, I wonder if you've experienced the limits of the hope because I, I wrestle with how you hold on to that hope in the midst of wanting to blow things up. I'm stuck on something I heard Malcolm say, uh, and I just want to make sure that um, I heard him correctly. Sometimes I hear something, and then I just be stuck there. And even if you, even if you went back and said something else, I, I didn't hear it. <laughs> it sounded in the beginning of your of what you were saying, Malcolm, like you were saying almost in a sense that grief or mourning or lament and hope are at odds with each other, opposite ends of the spectrum. And I just want to, I want to note that for me, hope is born out of those things. There is no hope without grief in, in some instances, right? When something difficult, terrible, traumatic has happened, the route to hope goes through mourning for me. It goes through grief. It goes through lament. And those, for me, those two things can't be separated. They, they are inextricably linked together. And then when we talk about that, and if those things are necessary for hope, it's important that those people who are going through those things, that they are the arbiters of how long or how much or to what extent they experience or they go through that process. Too often we try to move people past grief too quickly to hope. But if grief or mourning is a necessary route to hope, then it's something that has to happen, that we have to go through as, as uncomfortable as it may make others, as difficult as it may be for others. I think sometimes it's absolutely necessary. Part of what I'm, I'm trying to articulate is um, I think my faith gives me the ability um, to realize the, the depth of what is broken in the world and, and to truly lament that, to truly grieve it, to not turn my attention from it, to not pretend like it doesn't exist, to not think that I don't bear responsibility for it, that I'm not implicated in it. I think my faith calls me to look the world square in the eye and, and to properly grieve. I think the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that faith for me helps me to then do something constructive with that, gives me the ability to imagine something different. I think to me, though, what I mean when I'm talking about hope is that it's, it's something that actually roots me in 
the places that that feel hopeless, the issues that that you're talking about. So I appreciate that. I think the thing that is becoming clear for me is the reason that I love these questions so much, and particularly this question right here, what is at stake for you in X? What's at stake for you in believing that Black Lives Matter? What's at stake for you in believing that God is a God of freedom and liberty? Those are the things that we're actually arguing about. And when you begin to pull that thread, when any one of us pulls that thread, so much else comes out. So like as y'all were talking, one of the things that came up for me was at stake in my view that there's beauty and diversity in God's initial creative act and in God's continuing action in the world really is a concern for black people. And so if you pushed me further and you gave me the space and the time the hill that I'm really willing to die on, right? So I, I think that the task is to always get behind what you're actually saying. And when you're in a multicultural space, at least for some of us, you know, you learn how to frame things in a way that sound good to certain ears. But then when you push further, and I wasn't trying to be vague, y'all all know me and people who listen to podcasts know me well enough by now as well. But what's behind the way that I initially framed that hill on which I would die or what's the cornerstone of my faith is our deep concern and a deep love for black people, black women, Black gay men, black lesbian women, black trans women. That's what it's about. Because the world has the most difficulty, at least from my experience, with affirming and celebrating the beauty that is present in blackness. I feel like if we can just appreciate the beauty and the diversity, and those of us who call ourselves Christians can understand God that way, then maybe just maybe y'all will love black people and stop killing us. That's really what's below the surface. And so it's never as simple as me just saying, I want you to think that God is beautiful. It's never as simple as Sam saying, God is a God of freedom and God is a God of liberty. It's never, it's, it's never that simple. There's always something else. And for those for whom heaven is essential, they have to believe in the afterlife. There's something below the surface. It's never actually about the thing that we're naming. We've gone longer than we planned today because we wanted to tarry for the spirit a bit. But I think what we should do is maybe continue this conversation on another episode. And so Thursday's episode, we'll continue this conversation and we'll punch back in here at this sort of thick place. And we'll start to think about what would change about God for us if X, insert your X here, wasn't true. We're going to take another really quick break. It'll just be some music. So don't go anywhere because right when we come back, We're going to the bench. All right, y'all, you know the deal. The hour has come and the time is nigh. Who is on the bench? I didn't didn't know we were putting people on the bench. I can only think of the entire Presbyterian church. You put them on the bench like every time. And I only did it once. You guys keep putting it all inauthentic pastors, which covers most of them. Most of them. Uh, all of the male ones. Shoot. Women do that well, too. We know how to be like you. <laughs> so this has nothing to do with the episode. Uh, it has to do with a post that I saw that I shared to Facebook that I happen to totally agree with. Uh, Someone said that they see a lot of pastors uh, on their timeline celebrating uh, a female VP, but still refuse to ordain women in their churches. My God. And so I got to put every single pastor who is 
who will say that they're not sexist or misogynistic or all of those other things, uh, but their actions and their practices don't support that. There are no women who have been ordained in clergy positions. There are no women who are deacons. As a matter of fact, like the church that I was recently a part of, they had a whole ministry called deaconess. So if you was married to a deacon, you was a deaconess. But there were no female deacons in the church at all. So the um, only way they could become a deaconess is to be married like, to a deacon? To be married to a deacon. Wow. That's tacky. If you're not married to a deacon or a preacher or a pastor minister, you're not a deaconess. Oh, so, if, so regardless of who you're married to, pastor, deacon, elder, bishop, you're still going to be a deaconess. You're a deaconess. That's trash. Now, there were, there were female ministers in the church. Ministers. Um... I don't know for certain if any of those had been ordained by that particular church, maybe licensed to preach in the Baptist church. There are some nuances there. They mean different things. Um, and so I got to I gotta put those pastors on the bench. And even when I thought about like the trustee committee and those things, women did not serve as chairpersons. Like the, the, everything in, in senior leadership in the church was run by men. And uh, and this was a ch- church that was about justice and freedom and but the patriarchy was strong, <laughs> you know, very well known in the in the city of Atlanta. And yeah. I, uh, so yeah, you you need to be on the bench. The patriarchy is strong in this one. Yes, I think that is connected to today's episode because. I think what also starts to pop up right when you talk about these deeply held beliefs, it sounds like this church loved justice, but what was that really about? Was it about that was what was popular in that instance or in that season yeah. when the church came into fruition and they wanted members so they could get money and ties, but they actually didn't figure out the ways that justice needed to be built into the fabric of their own institution mm-hmm. so that there's there's this patriarchy that reigns the day. Like we have to question, I think it's deeply connected to all that we've just mm-hmm. discussed. I think there's a lot that's connected. So who else is on the bench? I'm going to put on all the pastors that have all kinds of theology, but they don't know the Lord. That's about 99.8% of the people who are preaching every Sunday morning. Um, You be reading, Katie. You be going hard on these hoes. (laughs) Well, well, you know, I mean, I I, I don't know how you can, well, I don't know. I'm going to put on the people who, who don't know Jesus who are preaching in Christian churches all over the place right now. Um, I can stick with my white Presbyterians if you want to, because then it, then it comes up to 99.9% of the people preaching, but I'm going to put them all on the bench. The structure of the church doesn't allow for people to truly step outside of it. Uh, you don't get jobs in the church if you step outside of the structure, and then you don't have enough time to sit and listen. And you know what? You got to sit and listen to God. So I think today we started off talking about, we, we had a little excursus talking about seminary and it seemed as if I was going to put seminary on the bench. But the longer that I thought about this, it's not actually seminary that I want to put on the bench. I think I'll use a metaphor or an image from Justo Gonzalez. Justo Gonzalez is a historian and a scholar who wrote a piece for the Christian Century back in December of last year. And the piece is called, There's No Theological Education Pipeline Anymore. Ultimately, he talks about how 
um, whatever image we had as a, of a pipeline, right? This thing that continued to push students to seminary who would become pastors. He talks about how that metaphor should now be think, thought about as a thriving irrigation hose that really does impact more people and have a broader appeal and impact. It's a wonderful article. I encourage you to read it if you're interested in questions about theology and theological education. But the reason that that article thinks is helpful for me is because it's not necessarily seminaries that are the problem. I think seminaries may participate in the problem of privatizing knowledge of God and making that some sort of secretive, mysterious, costly thing for people. Um, I think that there's a broader issue wherein we have and we've talked about this before, and I'm not saying this to necessarily say any one person or one denomination is wrong. I'm mostly saying, hey, the way that we are inviting people to participate in the life of the church or the life of the community or to live in relationship with God really isn't resulting in that life and life more abundantly that we've talked about and that, that we hear about and we read about in scripture. And so all the things that are involved in the, I hate this language because everything is now an industrial complex, you know, the educational industrial complex. So I'll say the church industrial complex and the seminary industrial complex, any models of religious formation, spiritual formation, theological education that really aren't accessible to people and really don't take seriously the lives um, of the students that they hope to educate. Um, and also don't take seriously the present realities of the world, the possibilities of online education, the possibilities of evening and weekend education. Anybody, any institution um, that's failing to ask those types of questions and create greater access to these types of conversations for a broader swath of people for a broader range of people, you got to get on the bench because you need some time to think about how you can transform your institution and transform your community so that you can turn the world right side up for Jesus or whatever deity you believe in. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Quick heads up, next week, we are going to flip things up a little bit. We'll be coming at you on Monday. You heard right, Monday with a brand new episode. We'll switch to a Monday-Thursday rhythm going forward. This coming Monday's conversation will feature our new Georgia State Senator, Reverend Kim Jackson, the first openly gay Black woman to be elected to the state legislature. It was a great conversation, and I hope you will enjoy it. And as always, if you're liking what you hear, go ahead and click that subscribe button at the top of your feed. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, leave a little rating and a review. We'll see y'all Monday. Peace. <laughs> so that bring the beat in was definitely Beyonce and not Kirk Franklin. But I mean, same difference. <laughs>